up only. 10, 9, ignition sequence Hello and welcome to Up Only TV, where I've already rugged something, but we are back and uh, we're uh, ready to go. Before we get to it, go to uponly.tv slash FTX. They are our partners for every episode of Up Only TV. You can trade directly from one asset to the other right there on FTX. Uponly.tv slash FTX. Thanks to them for being our partners. You can also earn yield on your assets if you're sitting in stables or uh, whatever else you might be doing right there at FTX. That's right. Let's get to our show and say hello again to our good friend, Kobe. How you doing, buddy? Oh my god, I I'm, still rugged it. Where are we? <laughs> You've disappeared your own face. I, I'm alright, mate. I can't hear out of my right ear, but that's alright, I got my left one. Um, and take loads of antibiotics so I can't drink anything. Maybe it's a good thing, might get my life on track. How are you doing? Missed you? I missed you too. Uh, I thought I had done everything after not doing a show for like a month, and I ended up uh, messing it up immediately because our intro, <laughs> our intro video didn't roll because my Dropbox rugged me, and I only got the uh, the one video back. So, whatever, that's okay. We're back. We're. Uh, I'm happy to see you. You've been in Africa. I was in Africa. We didn't see each other though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been too much. Yeah, we got to, we got to avoid each other for the rest of the time, and we've got the paradigm founders with us. So, like, while you've been like messing around, like fucking up the stream and shit, you're wasting very important people's time. <laughs> yeah, what else is new? <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt, Fred, welcome. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Welcome. So we like. I, don't, I imagine you've never watched a polling TV. It would be a waste of your time. For the people who are watching, they know it's a waste of their time, but they're, they're just doing it anyway. Um, so we like don't really have a plan or do anything. We just like sit here for a while, normally get drunk, but I can't get drunk, um, and we just see what happens. So hopefully <laughs> you're up for that. Um, and, well, why don't you send um, us drinks in advance? We're like sitting here with water in 100% uh, dark. Like we've got a low budget. Times are hard. You've seen the charts. <laughs> it's down like 7% or something. <laughs> um, so uh, how did you two meet? Like, how do you know each other? What happened? You should start with that one. Well, this is, God, there's so many intersection points here. I think the original was Coinbase Pitch Sequoia, where Matt was working at the time for our Series B and our Series C. There's another funny story where, so when you go and interview at Sequoia, you have to write a sample memo for a company you would invest in. Uh, at the time when Matt was going through that process, he wrote a memo on Coinbase. We didn't even know each other at this point, um, but maybe there was some destiny in there. And then uh, the, I think the real kind of genesis of it was after I left Coinbase, I wrote this blog post in 2017, which you can probably still find on my blog somewhere, where the gist of it was um, the basis for the metaverse is a blockchain. And Matt, like, is sitting here at, in a seat at Sequoia and is like, hey, maybe I should email this guy. Like, maybe he wants to build this idea as an entrepreneur. I'm sitting, like, in my apartment in my boxers knowing full well, like, there's no way in hell I'm actually building this thing. But, like, wouldn't it be hilarious to, like go pitch Sequoia on this thing. Like, and it would, it would be good to pressure test the idea too. Right. 
to sort of like go in and like we talk about the idea. I think Matt probably could sense that like I maybe was not going to go build this thing. But it did kick off this email chain of like 60 emails where we went back and forth debating all sorts of stuff in crypto. Oh, uh, yeah, and then and then maybe got the rest got of this. Yeah, got to start. Oh, classic there. Fred troll. Um, but yeah, I mean, meeting him, talking to him about this VR idea, kind of had the light bulb click. I don't know if you you've ever felt it. Of yeah, I, there's something special about this person. I'd love to work with them someday. Whether it was like fund his next company or or something else. So what what year was this? Because you know, I've only known the word metaverse for about three weeks now. Uh, <laughs> yet it's yet it's half of the words that you say out loud that's right, that's right. naturally <laughs> this was 2017 yeah okay. yeah okay. yeah i had been lucky enough at that time i i did a weekend where i kind of i've spent the weekend talking about what the metaverse would look like with some of the top execs from the big companies at the time so like um Somebody from, uh, I think somebody from EA was there, somebody from Activision, um, somebody from um, from Unity. Jeez, uh, I think somebody from Google. Um, and it was sort of like the clear conclusion from that weekend is like, yeah, all this sort of visual stuff that people associate with metaverse is definitely going to be some part of it. But like the real root of it is some data layer where you can take your digital stuff from here, this one world, and bring it over there. Um, and that's where, like, I think when people talk about the metaverse, they don't yet realize that, like, crypto is the metaverse. Like, it is that shared data layer where everybody agrees who owns what digital stuff. And that allows you to, like, take it from here and bring it over there. So what you're saying is it's not just, like, that weird voxels, uh, like, sort of Doom graphics uh, <laughs> style, like world where you just walk around and look at the three other people that are in there. But it's the idea that you can take the stuff that you have into that world, but also like a hundred other worlds just like it that other people have created. Um, it's that shared state between all those worlds. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like inherent in the name, right? Like meta means the com. It's sort of like the combination of all the worlds. Um, and you don't just think this is trendy because of like the new Marvel like timeline shit they're doing. <laughs> well, maybe we could get into like theories of parallel universes in the physics <laughs> Um Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, I like sometimes I think metaverse is just what people say when they don't know what else to say. Like like the word convexity, people just seem like in case any of sounds smart, they're just throwing a word and metaverse has become the new one. But um, I do think it makes sense that we've seen over this year, people and the last few years, actually people um, having this online identity that's like around an Ethereum address or a Solana address or like a, a whatever, some online thing. And they, they want to port that into different systems and be able to, you know, use it here, here and there. Um, how do you think this is going to play out over the next, like, I don't know, this is a hard question, but like 15 to 20 years, like what do you think it practically looks like in the future? Oh God, so many things in this. <laughs> one, Sorry. one observation that, you know, we often think about is how uh, sort of to state the obvious people are spending more time in these digital worlds and, 
you know, you can think of Twitter or Discord as a version of that. You can think of World of Warcraft or Fortnite. And as people spend more time there, they're also spending money, right? Like the in-game item economy is massive, you know, totally outside of the crypto context. But if you really think about that, that's kind of like, you know, putting all your energy into these systems that are ultimately owned by someone else. And it's not a government that has sort of a clear code of law and property rights. It's sort of the whims of Google or Facebook or, or someone else. Um, so I think one thing that's really potentially compelling is blockchains enabling these property rights. And I think, you know, much like developed countries or developing countries sort of are limited if they're, if they don't have strong property rights, if, you know, the government can come in and seize your assets or, you know, there's like local warlords that are going to come after you. I think you know, enabling strong property rights in crypto, using crypto could make these digital worlds a lot bigger than they are today. So I think that's just a general trend that we're probably going to see over 10, 15 years. And, and just ripping on that more, it's sort of like, I don't think people today realize both how restrictive the internet is today and also like how important it will be that we have the real concept of digital property rights in the future. I think today we effectively live in, the internet is effectively feudalism today. There are like a few big platforms, the castle walls are closed. If you want to leave, you can't take your stuff. Um, if you want to change how the system works, you have absolutely no power. You're sort of like at the whim of the king of the castle. And you could say that of any of the, the, the walled garden kind of web two giants today. And then as Matt's describing, I think crypto is a huge sea change in that. It's sort of like everybody owns their own stuff. It's like all of a sudden you've invented, um, you've invented commerce. Like you can, you can take your stuff from one place and trade it for stuff in another place or bring it to another place. Um, and that, that's probably going to unleash a lot, a lot of innovation. One other thought. Oh, go ahead. When you talked about the web to being feudalism, is it because apps took such a dominant space within the web versus like, you know, just websites themselves, like kind of an open HTTP environment? Uh, like now so many people like Facebook is their Internet or like they spend all of their social media time on Instagram. Is that a is that the reason or like could it could it have been more open in a web based um, Internet or or do you think it's kind of either way? It's still feudalism. I think it was missing a key technical ingredient, which was the ability to to sort of store state in a decentralized way. And that's ultimately what blockchains allow you to do. Um, Because even though, you know, take email as a great decentralized protocol, but like everyone on this, you know, podcast probably uses Gmail or Outlook. And so there, there still are these sorts of centralized systems that end up with all the data. Um, so I think for the first time with blockchains and Web3, we have the chance to, to change that. It's probably, it's sort of like, um, I think crypto fundamentally changes the barrier to entry and the barrier to exit. So it's not that, you know, everything in crypto is going to be fully decentralized. Like clearly that's not right. There's going to be a bunch of great centralized experiences that are built on this decentralized base. And the observation that we would have is, um, again, going back to the feudalism analogy, 
Today, you look at the major web platforms, they haven't really changed over the last 10 years. The top 10 apps in the App Store have effectively been static, which leads you to believe like, okay, this is not a competitive, a free competition environment. There's massive, massive barriers to entry if you want to create um, something new. It's sort of like, imagine somebody leaving the castle walls and trying to start a new castle over here. It's, It's really hard. So we think the barrier to entry will just be much lower because there's this new, uh, there's this new like there's this new paradigm, there's a new base layer on which people can openly build. And then in terms of barrier to exit, we talked about that with the property rights idea. It's sort of like let's say you're a creator on Instagram and you want to take your following somewhere else, you can't directly port it, you don't own your images, etc. Um, so I don't think it's like it's not a binary. Uh, centralized, decentralized, it's it's that the friction to starting something new, um, either as a as an entrepreneur or a creator or a user, is just much lower. And we think that'll just create a lot more innovation and also a lot more composability as we've already seen in crypto. It's, it feels a little bit like the um the web two gatekeepers have started to realize this trend and that ownership will um mean that like web three is able to threaten web two because you got jack um from twitter who's uh side funding decentralized twitter and um you know trying to um build a decentralized version of his own company i guess um you've got uh facebook and obviously they've just changed the name to meta uh uh in the last couple months i don't know i thought that story was a joke i was like no way this actually <laughs> happens like it's like them changing their name to loom dart or something i was like no there's no way that this actually happens but that i guess it did um what do you think the like strategies for companies like that do you think they just try and uh do you think there will be a war for the metaverse i think the challenge in any big technological paradigm shift is whether or not um the companies fully embrace from the ground up the new technology is sort of like media companies going into the internet. Like how many of them just put their existing media property on the internet relative to trying some totally new approach. Of course, the thing that got really big was fundamentally totally different. It was social media. It wasn't traditional media. Right. So I think that that's the big question for a lot of these incumbents is like how crypto native can they really get? And are they willing to adopt totally new approaches that might be very different or, or even orthogonal um, or uh, cannibalizing short-term to, to some of their existing businesses. Um, so we'll see. I, I, think, I think if you were to poll us today, and I'm curious what you think, I think we're maybe more bullish on some categories than others. Like gaming companies, it feels like they might be more likely to be able to make the jump because just installing an open economy into games might be the right or one right approach to games. If you're current gen social media, that feels like it might be harder in, in sort of the full ground up sense, just because the social media networks of the future, whatever that means, that term will probably look wrong in retrospect. You're just going to look a lot different. So there's, there's, there's always the innovator's dilemma and there's probably like an, it depends element. I think Jack is probably closest to getting it of the big, you know, social founders. Um, I mean, the analogy I think about is like the digital world that we live in today is like all monarchies or dictatorships. And you're sort of looking for like the first country that's willing to go democracy, right? And just like give up the power that they have and let the people rule. And I think that's a really hard thing to do if you 
you know, have a huge business and kind of are afraid. One other thing um, that you guys brought up before is it may be that we look back on this and, and realize as a network effects-based business, which all the largest internet platforms, which are also the largest companies by market cap in the world, we look back and it's sort of like the only approach is one in which you give users some ownership. It doesn't mean it's a lot, um, but, but that might sort of just become the norm over the next 20 years. And if so, that's a pretty radical sea change. Do you think that requires uh, users essentially seeing some of what's in it for them? So, like, if you look at play-to-earn type stuff with Axie, like, maybe that's the linchpin that, like, tells them, like, oh, yeah, like, we can earn stuff because we're using these companies' products. We can share in, like, the network effects growth of this of this ecosystem. I think that's right. Like, the hardest part about getting a network effects-based business going is the chicken and the egg problem at the beginning. You're starting new Twitter. You're the first user there. You shout into an empty room. There's no utility. You leave. And that problem goes on ad infinitum, which is why some of these Web2 giants, like they just haven't changed. The network effects are so big at this point that overcoming that is really hard. And I think our view is that crypto presents the first real potential orthogonal solve to overcoming that cold start problem, which is... At the beginning, when the network has low utility, you're the first user who shows up on Twitter 2.0, whatever it is, you get ownership in the network. And that um, the potential economic upside um, in being an early owner of the network offsets the fact that the utility is low at the start. Um, and it's worth noting that idea of play to earns also kind of existed for decades, right? Like I'm sure you guys remember the uh, World of Warcraft gold farmers or people selling items or uh, CSGO skins. And I think for all those, like ultimately you're sort of bound by the terms of service of the game and people sort of do it on the side. Um, it's all sort of underground. Whereas I think the crypto games that are embracing play, play to earn, it's sort of like a core part of the game. Um, and I think that is actually much more attractive for people who like depend on the money for a living to try and embrace. I think play to earn is just yield farming with a waste your time component <laughs> added on top. People love on some level, I think like work equals purpose for humans. So yeah. there's there's a lot of good theory on this where a lot of the most popular games like world of warcraft they actually have a strong like work component to them like people actually find a lot of meaning in that um in sort of like building towards these these experiences in these games so um i think i think you're right i think that actually might be a feature in some ways as mm -hmm. much as it could be viewed as a bug well a lot um, of people kind of love to dump on the metaverse but i think you know, often what's in common with those people is like their normal lives are pretty good. But if you look around the world, there's actually a ton of people who like the normal life is not that great. There's a lot of purpose and fun that can be found on the Internet. Um, and I think the metaverse is really like for those people, first and foremost. And that's an audience that's been growing, you know, for decades and is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, one thing that made it click for me, the like the metaverse stuff, because I'm always incredibly skeptical. Um, I'm, you know, in crypto from 2012-ish, and I just saw everything was just like 
uh, everything went zero. No one ever did what they said they was going to do. Uh, I've like used crypto rush. I use like crypto, like all these things, they all just disappeared. Um, so I became very, very skeptical and it was, uh, always a case of like, get in, get your like five X multiple and just fucking bail. Cause it's not going to be a real <laughs> thing anyway. Like, do you remember when they did the Iceland coin airdrop? They were going to uh, airdrop it to everyone in Iceland. That never happened. Did it? That was a lie. Um, so I became really small. skeptical. I'm thinking too small. <laughs> World coins got it right. You know, not just Iceland, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. You just trade an eyeball for it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so metaverse, it's like, it's a thing to be skeptical of. And I think I'm, extra skeptical when stuff translates onto like saturday night live and they start talking about the metaverse and they make it sound like even more stupid and you're like (laughs) but the thing that made it click for me was i remembered when i was younger and i played um the early halo games and the early call of duty games and i did those like weird things in the game where you like go you jump through all these hoops and you go around and you do this like extremely long mission you get a special helmet uh, I did it. I spent ages getting this special helmet, um, and then I stopped playing the game. And then a different game came out later, and uh, you know you could maybe get the helmet again if you connected your account and you could do some stuff. But um, I've done that with loads of games through my life where I've spent a lot of time um, on some meaningless objective, <laughs> um, and there's no record of all the things I've done. Like I, I probably have some like quite good. Um, like clout now from all these like weird uh, like secret right objectives now. I found in in games. I'd also have some like embarrassing clout for the eight years I spent playing League of Legends, like twelve hours a day. <laughs> but um, like connecting all that together and then allowing it to influence the next game I play. Um, like bringing like when you create your character in Skyrim or something. You've I've been creating it for the last like fifteen years of my life. I don't want to like just change the guy's hair. I want to import my history and like all the mistakes and stuff I made um, back then. And then it's like kind of clicked. I play a video game and I just, it knows who I am already. And it's got my stuff from my real world and my game history. And then I was like, all right, the metaverse is maybe a thing, maybe a thing I can, I can stand them talking about for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you were saying before we started, right? Like you've had the handle crypto Kobe for what, how long yeah, now? Like- and it started as just like this, like random idea you had as a kid. And now it's like, it's built all this brand value. So in some sense, you're, you're kind of living this in a way. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's weird. I also um, met uh, Francis, Kurt's daughter at a festival. <laughs> and, um, someone was like, someone brought up the account and it was one of the worst experiences of my entire life. <laughs> it's like, it's awful. You pretend to be my dead father on the internet. All oh, right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I made, I made it ages ago and it was like just a way to not talk, to talk about crypto all the time, but not as myself. Cause I had a bunch of followers from other things. I didn't want to bother them all the time about this like weird drug money. Um, cause Silk Road was popping back in those days. Um, and then, yeah, it became a thing. And now I've got this like split personality disorder that, um, <laughs> I inflicted on myself. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for y'all, which is why is it important? Like what we wear and who we are in the metaverse? Like, why is it just this de facto standard that we're going to have a profile picture or a 3d character or something in the metaverse that represents us? And it's not just ourselves. Like, why can't it be, you know, video or like, you know, some actual representation of ourselves? What, why is, why is that? such a big part of this and it seems to be the only thing anyone focuses on right now, at least in terms of what the metaverse will look like. Well, 
I mean, deep question. Yeah, I mean, part of the beauty of the internet or anything virtual is that you can create the world that you want to create, right? So I think, um, I think that's where people's creativity will be unleashed. And like, you know, I'm guessing if you ask most people, like, what is really important to you, or what is your mental image of yourself? Like, would they literally describe their exact physical appearance? <laughs> Um, and like, even that is like, it's kind of a limiting frame. Right. Um, so yeah. And then I think to answer another part of the question, which you're getting at, which is sort of like, why do people place value in this stuff? I think we're already living in a world where people's digital identities are as valuable, if not more valuable to a lot of people than their, their physical or meat space ones. I think we were all early on this in some sense, I know Matt and I both played a bunch of games. Like I've spent 4,000 hours in World of Warcraft when I was 16 years old. I cared way more about my WoW character and my armor than anything else. Like that, that was right. You could not pay me any dollar amount to sell that. All right. um, you, just, you just ruined a lot of, a lot of college parents where they're like, <laughs> you're never going to make it kid. You're never going to make it playing these games all day. And they're like, here's right. the co-founder of paradigm. And he just did nothing but world of Warcraft. <laughs> well, I've actually had this exact conversation with parents many times. I will tell the slight, the slightly sad conclusion of that story in a monetary sense. Which is like, I ended up selling bucks when I was 18, which like, or 17, whatever. So the time was like, that was cool. If you look at the dollar, the, the hourly wage on that, it equates to roughly six cents an hour. It's like clearly not a good economic proposition. I think crypto will simultaneously change that. It also like it turns out and like Matt was huge on poker in, in college. And I think we would both say that playing games or like just getting really, really good at anything probably just helps develop thinking. There's really good studies actually on Portal, the video game where basically they find that um, kids' mental facilities are increased more by playing Portal than attending a math class, like at least up to some limit. Like you can only play so much Portal. <laughs> math is probably like you can do more in it. Um, but yeah, a long way of saying like games actually turn out to be really good for learning, I think, in addition to now having real economies. Nice. But, Anyway, sorry, just to return to like your original, back to the point of like yeah, yeah. people, how people value their digital identities relative to the physical ones. Like, actually, Kobe, I'm curious your view on this. Like, how much do you care about your Twitter account relative to like when you walk down the street, like what somebody thinks of you or. Yeah, I've not really walked down the street. I've just been outside, but for the previous year, I haven't spent much time on streets. <laughs> I don't go outside very much, mate. <laughs> Somebody right. in the um, chat was like, Kobe's right. white balance is That in of itself is kind of a lesson too, right? It's sort of like the digital world is sort of like, yeah. Like, what, what, I, like, what I do like, what I do like is that I can separate the two things out. Like I can go have like an, like I can go outside and I can go wander around and no one's going to be like, that tweet you posted was offensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just feels like they're two separate things and I can sort of turn it off and I can just put my phone away and then mm. I don't have to uh, pretend to be... Kirk Bain on the internet for a bit. Um, But um, yeah. And and, and, like, I think I have several personalities. I got that, that Twitter account. I got some other Twitter (laughs) accounts and then I got, (laughs) I got, you know, I play video games with a group of people and they know me as something different as well. So um, uh, I think there's several like 
characters or whatever that um or heteronyms or something um that uh, I sort of uh care about I guess um which, that's kind which of like I think uniquely, sorry just just to riff on it for one second that's kind of like one question we ask ourselves a lot is like for any new crypto idea is it uniquely enabled by crypto or not mm. one interesting thing that is uniquely enabled by digital worlds that is not uh, able to happen in the physical world is you can have multiple identities um so that'll probably be like a big part of the metaverse or just like of our digital future take one off put a, put another one on and your maybe your real life personality can just be be one of those that makes sense. What I like about it, what I like about it is you can be very creative if you allow yourself to like abandon your own opinions and say like this character I have in my head, they like these certain things. They, you know, they think about stuff in a different way to me and I get into that person's mind. What would they think about this situation? You get to be very creative like that. Like I would never say that, but that person would say that. And that that's quite interesting. Um, Anyway, we're not really talking about crypto anymore. We're talking about my men- mental illnesses. So. <laughs> the the, the chat is even further off on a tangent, so it's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I stopped looking at chat because they were making me laugh. They were like mocking my tan. Yeah. Somebody, somebody <laughs> so asked like, if your white balance was off on your camera. <laughs> You've just been outside for the first time in two years. Yeah, they were mocking my ear as well. Not very nice. They're, they're bullying me. <laughs> um yeah. All right, so we've been we've been baited by the late twenty twenty one straight to the metaverse. Um, <laughs> let's cycle back a bit. We know how you uh, you both met. Now you decide to start Paradigm together. Um, like, how, how, where did it go from there? Like, you now have a research team and other um, other VCs uh, trying to do the Paradigm method of like having sort of co building or like. Uh, um, like research first, um, like work, I guess, <laughs> uh, like contribute to the space for, I, I guess they see it as like for brand purposes, but um, otherwise they don't call it the paradigm method. But, you know, like lots happened since you uh, founded this. And like, can you take us on a, a quick version of what that was like and why some of those decisions were made? Yeah, I mean, um, after we met in 2017 and started spending more time together, I think the biggest question we had was, you know, we became convinced that this crypto thing, I mean, Fred much earlier than me, to his credit, Coinbase started in 2012. Um, but 2017, we started to see that crypto is definitely going to be part of the future. Probably the most interesting thing we could work on for 10, 20 years. Um, like we grew up on the internet, but in a lot of ways we missed it, right? Like a lot of the biggest internet companies were already built. Crypto felt like this place that we could actually contribute, make a difference. Um, but when we looked out there, we didn't see another crypto investment firm that you know, if we were starting something, we'd want to take money from. So that's that was the core of of where it came from. And we started to, I mean, we went on walks, we, we did an offsite in the woods. Like we started to put ideas on paper of what that would look like. And I think one of the early seeds was this idea of you know, the, the type of talent in crypto that's going to make a difference is very different than like the staff engineer at Google um, or like the, the famous XYZ person in Web2. Uh, it was just a unique skill set. Some of them are, you know, anonymous or pseudonymous. So a core premise for the firm was always be a place that, you know, really special, brilliant people would want to spend time. And if we could get that part right, 
regardless of what they were doing, like everything else would probably fall into place. And, you know, it's like we never had a job spec for like the research role. We just knew Dan Robinson and we were like, how do we get him on the team? Like, let's make something up. Uh, you can spend time however you want. At the time he was working on like stellar open source stuff. Um, and we just took it from there or Samsung, like we never thought we needed a security person, but we started seeing Sam, the legend, um, just finding all the bugs. Right. And so we were like, maybe we should, we should talk to him. Um, and you know, everything's evolved from there. Like obviously a lot of structure has come into place and, you know, we've developed more of an intentional strategy, but really coming back to first principles, it's really that talent first approach that I think, continues to guide us today. I don't know if you riff on that. I agree with that. And the only thing I would say is you, you can kind of like hear in that, that it, it is very, um, one of the great things about just starting from the ground up with the idea that we just want to build something that is as valuable as possible to the people building ambitious new ideas in crypto is it is, it's very evolutionary. We didn't, as Matt said, we didn't start with some specific top-down idea. We've just seen and listened to what we think people need and then also have just listened to what is the great talent out there and can we create some role that just lets them do the awesome thing they do. Um, and it's early, but um, that, that's, that's made it pretty fun so far. It's a this general, is awesome. I think it's a general phenomenon, actually, that like, Obviously, it's sort of obvious when you state it, but like the young, the talented young people are the people that actually create the future. And so if you think about like where the talented young people want to go, like 20 years ago, maybe it was like Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. Yes. Uh, 10 years ago, <laughs> Fred, Fred worked at Goldman. Um, not for long. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was like Google, Facebook. Like, I think today, most of the young people we meet or talk to like, are already messing around with crypto, right? Like um, Anish, who's on our team, or Charlie, like they, they were in crypto when they were 12. And you just, if you capture the inspiration in the minds of people who are up and coming and brilliant, I think that's really powerful for crypto as a whole. And, you know, obviously we think about that paradigm too. You um you mentioned you uh, wanted to build this because you couldn't find a place you'd want to raise money from um, if you were building a, a thing. Um, do you think that's got better or worse uh, since 2017? <laughs> Might be an unfair question. You can just stare blankly at the screen if it's like <laughs> it's politically bad to answer the question. We're biased, you know. We think um, we think we're doing an okay job. I think one thing we think about is like, it's actually uh, exclude great. yourselves. Oh, exclude ourselves. I think it's great that more and more investors are focused on crypto. And I think generally the, the like quality of investors, the quality of help that investors bring to the table has gone up. And I think that's awesome. Cause I think for us, like there's nothing more we'd love to see than crypto become like this powerful movement that takes over the world. And I think we're already well on our way there. I think that it's got more extreme. There's like much, many more good examples now, and then like many more, much, much, much worse examples as well. Um, and it's interesting to see. Go ahead. Sorry, Ledger. I was, Go ahead. I was still thinking about like your your people that you bring on. You all just announced today 
um, like an entrepreneur in residence, uh, Jackson Dahl. Yeah, the I, guy from Hundred Thieves. Yeah, but I was also thinking like you know between uh, Dan or like Hasu or like a bunch of these people, really really smart people. Sam, um, which Sam's my Sam's son, CZ. It's like. His name is a combination of three gigabillionaires in crypto. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, a lot of these people are so talented. They could probably go do like billion dollar protocols, get infinite funding on their own. So like, how do you incentivize people like from a culture perspective? I don't, you know, not talking about money necessarily, but like make them say like, I'm at Paradigm because this is the best freaking place to be versus go like chasing, doing their own project or something. So well, maybe we both riff on this. It's, I'd say our, our goal is just to help the people building the most ambitious things out there. And one cool thing, if you're on the team, is you probably want to work on those things too. And it might be that you get to help multiple of them at once. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like for the right brains, that can be yeah. a pretty epic setup. They don't have to marry the bag. <laughs> uh yes that that me might even be that parlance might even be beyond me but yeah yeah like that. well you, you've you've just only been in profit you know you have to be uh <laughs> you have to be desperate in your position and down horrendous like somebody like me uh to know what it means to marry the bag uh, well, yeah at the risk of going on a tangent like imagine being working on a crypto company from 2014 to 2017 yeah, that was yeah. fucking brutal. Yeah, three years where it was down only for three straight years. That was brutal. yeah. Um, that was then, that was like the 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 light had gone out. In life. <laughs> it was tr- yeah. Twenty like twenty seventeen after that like twenty eighteen nineteen that was nothing compared to the twenty fourteen one because it was like gawks and everything. It was horrible. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And, um, Anyway, Mark I mean, Cuban and that was Ethereum and a bunch of the stuff we see today. So it was like time, yeah. time spent in some internal sense. Um, but, Mark yeah. Cuban in the chat wants to know uh, how many anons are on the Paradigm team. It might not be the real Mark Cuban. We're never sure. <laughs> um, so if you look at the website, we have at least Sam and Hasu, um, and we've got I think another joining soon, uh, and. Yeah, we're experimenting with it. I think what, what's great about crypto is like people can come out of nowhere and do amazing stuff on the internet. And you don't have to go look at where they went to school or you know what they did in the past. Like the, the work is just out there and speaks for itself. And I think that's super powerful. Mm-hmm. So for us, like we, we love that talent and it comes from everywhere around the world. Another question I have about the uh I guess like the research side of things that you'll do is you'll put out a blog post and it's like, you just throw it out there for everybody. And I look at it and I'm like, somebody definitely could have taken this idea and raised a ton of money. And you're just like, well, here's how you financialize NFTs and (laughs) you just give it to everybody. Like, um, what's the, what's the strategy with that? And then like, where does that, how do you encourage that type of, uh, out of guess culture where you're not like, okay, well, here's exactly how we're strategizing what we're going to build around this primitive concept in crypto that nobody else has thought about. Um, it's just an interesting model for me. I love reading the posts and then I instantly start thinking like, who's going to do this? You know, like this is a huge product. One thing we both learned is um, 
you know, having started companies and worked on them and invested in a bunch, like it takes a lot of energy and dedication and time to build anything that succeeds, right? Um, and so even if you have the idea to actually put together a team and a company or a DAO and actually execute on it is a lot of work. And so part of what we hope when, you know, the research team publishes some of these ideas is that that actually brings people to reach out to us and maybe that's the start of a collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing we think about is like, you know, not to get too um, like karmic or whatever, but I think the world kind of like gives you back what you put into it. And a lot of what we think about at Paradigm is just doing good by crypto overall, just trying to contribute and good things, good people kind of come out of the woodwork in, in that process. But we try to think less you know, transactionally about every given thing that we do, you know, what are we getting out of it? Um, we just try to move the ball forward. I'll also say one, one belief we had going in is a lot of the best ideas, whether it's research-related, investment-related, or otherwise, come from people just following their natural curiosity. Like, that's how you get to this good stuff. It's, like, not necessarily the hot thing at the time. That's how kind of the like first principles, how you get to um, how you get to the good stuff. And we wanted to try to create an environment where people were um, not only could do that, but they were explicitly encouraged to do it. I like it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, there's another question from the chat about Anons. Um, I've got my own theory, but they want to know which one of you is 0x tuba. <laughs> Like it's in the background over there, can't you see? <laughs> it's a he, right? We've got we've got that's a he. <laughs> that's like on the on the is it guess who where you got to flip all the faces down? Yeah, yeah, guess who? Guess who? We can erase like fifty percent of the board now. Yeah, all right, we've narrowed it down. Next we've we'll made some progress. He has a mustache. <laughs> um, uh, so over the last sort of. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Time all blurs into one. I don't know how, like, what month is it? End of November. It's my birthday in three days. Fucking hell. Um, So over the last, like, few months, people have been starting talking about DeFi 2.0, which to me seems like forks of DeFi 1.0 with, like, new logos and stuff. Or, like, (laughs) yeah, on Avalanche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the uh, traditional DeFi stuff has been in a bit of like a, a bear market, especially against ETH. Um, and uh, there's often people saying on, on uh, the internet that it's feeling a bit stale and they haven't seen anything interesting in DeFi in a while. And then a new primitive or something pops up and everyone's skeptical about it. And then it goes to like a multi-billion dollar valuation. And then someone just says they haven't seen anything in a while again. And it sort of, sort of repeats. So where do you think we're at in this sort of, um, in the, the, uh, the life story of DeFi, where do you think we are and what do you think uh, happens next? I think we're super early. I mean, um, I mean, if what's happening is we're building a financial system from the ground up uh, on blockchains, I think there's still a lot left to build. Um, and we often think about this idea of sort of the periodic table of DeFi. There's sort of these elemental primitives that we're discovering. And, you know, basic decentralized exchange is one of those lending, leverage, synthetic assets. Um, and maybe there's some squares where like there could be something like 
algorithmic stable coins, but maybe we haven't figured out what exactly the right way to do that, or even if it's possible. Um, so I think innovation will come in waves, like the new hot thing every month, like this month, it might be some NFT thing or some Web3 thing. But in the background, we meet a lot of people who are still working on DeFi. Um, and so I think if DeFi is interesting at all, it's probably interesting for the next 10 years. One super top-down way of thinking about it is DeFi has gone from zero to $100 billion in user assets in this new financial system over the last three years. That's been really impressive exponential growth to this point. Of course, with lots of bumps along the way, and there'll be a lot of bumps in the future. Isn't half of that yours, though? (laughs) Isn't half of that yours? (laughs) They still can't hear. Yeah, and then like one really kind of like galaxy brain thought around that is, well, $100 billion is nothing. It's not even a drop in the bucket compared to the hundreds of trillions in the traditional financial system. So like if you think about this on a multi-decade horizon, we're so, 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 so early still. Um, uh, and that's part of what is, of course, like exciting about crypto in general, which is the markets it addresses whether it's money or it's the financial system as a whole or it's just the way people build the largest internet platforms in the world those are like arguably the biggest markets in the world in some sense so while it might seem like there's some reasonable scale today depending on your point of view it's still it's still really early what do you think are the missing pieces to take us from that 100 billion to those multi-trillions like what are the um the the things we need to stepping stone along to the big buy money you have a well i I think your point around just embedded trust in systems is a good one yeah i mean i think one thing that's missing is um well some of these things just take time right like um you know you can analogize to your software as a service which today is like the hottest tech category and you know there's a new SaaS ipo every week um but actually like people don't remember back like 15 years ago the idea that like you would outsource some really important piece of software to someone else in the cloud it was like this really controversial idea um and companies like fortune 500s used to not buy software that way they used to do it on-prem um yeah and buy cds and stuff so I think, but what you saw happen is like over time, as the SaaS software exists and people use it and it works and it doesn't, you know, get hacked or go down, people start to trust it more and more. And I think the same thing will happen with DeFi. It's like we put 100 billion assets in DeFi. Sometimes there are hacks and, you know, hopefully Samsung can start saving some of that. But over time... It, it'll get more and more hard. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was a brutal one. And it's it's like one of those things. Like once it's existed for five years, you start to trust it a little more. Maybe people put more money in it. I think another thing that'll happen is like right now, crypto obviously is like very um, yield seeking and, and speculation driven. And I think in the long run, like when this DeFi infrastructure is like serving trillions in assets. It's going to be a little less speculative. It'll be a little more like what are the actual financial services that are being demanded by companies and users? Um, and I think there's a lot to build until we get there, and it just takes time. And I think we'll see these like waves of 
people will speculate on DeFi, a bunch of infrastructure will get built, and then that infrastructure will then be able to serve sort of more real use cases over time. The cool thing is like, I think the process Matt is describing, this has already played out to a certain extent with the institutional adoption of Bitcoin. You can see at the beginning, it's like, is this even a real idea? Is this a scam? Isn't this for drugs? And then it's sort of like, okay, well, like, will this network actually be able to hold billions and billions of dollars over time? And now the question, and the question shifted to, okay, can we institutionally custody this in a way that regulators are okay with? And say, mm-hmm. like, so I think the Overton window has just shifted so far on some of these questions. I feel like um, uh, the, the same will just happen with, with, with DeFi, just like it has with the institutional adoption of Bitcoin. When you just kind of look at the progress that's been made, like two years ago, there were a few um, like trading desks that traded DeFi or interacted with DeFi. And today, basically, like every single trading desk at every bank or prop firm in Chicago or everywhere else is like thinking about DeFi or, or working on it. And that's that's not going away. And that's a tremendous amount of sort of liquidity and market making potential that can now serve new DeFi protocols that launch. You have Coinbase and Custody and, you know, on and on and on, all this infrastructure that exists today that didn't really exist two years ago. So I think we're really well set up for DeFi to continue to compound over the next 10, 10 years. Around the trust, you talked about uh, time and, and people's willingness to just realize that these things are possible. It makes me think of like when elevators came out, they had the attendant and then a lot of it was basically because people felt safer if there was like a person operating it versus just being able to push the button. It does its own thing. Um, one of the things I hear a lot is just kind of this fear of it's gone forever. So like the finality of the blockchain is a feature and also uh, can establish fear for people. And do you think in addition to time and like best practices, some other like feel good things like insurance on chain for your assets or like some product driven stuff could assist in establishing um, more trust for people? Just to riff on the first point for a second, there's a great book by Robin Hanson called The Elephant in the Brain, where he talks about these sort of like how some industries or some products might actually be mostly superfluous. And just because people like want this sensation of feeling cared for that he argues most of healthcare is actually just like, cause people want to feel like a person is taking care of them. It's it totally independent of the efficacy of the treatment. Um, not to say that like, that's the case. That's <laughs> the case. At least. Yeah. Maybe that happens. Who knows? Um, on the product question, I think it's, yeah, your thought. Well, one thing I'd say is like, I think, Crypto, you can always add reversibility on top of an irreversible protocol using some centralized or layer two sort of solution. And so whether it's like, you know, on-chain insurance or insurance that gets built on top, like to the extent Coinbase was was to ever offer that, um, I think some people sort of have the, the model that the blockchain has to solve everything. But I think you know, we often forget like society can build a lot of stuff around these core primitives that end up solving the issues that people have. And on the flip side, like irreversible transactions can be really powerful for certain use cases. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it's great we have those too. We actually did one, one thing we did at Coinbase was we got the first private insurance in the world, at least as far as I'm aware 
on yeah. on Orca. This is in like 2014 or something. That was a bizarre scene, by the way. Like, imagine walking into Lloyd's of London. It's like all these. I mean, Kobe, you're, you could probably picture this. Uh, I know you don't walk outside your door, but immersing <laughs> yourself in your cultural mindset for a second over there. And, and like walking up to somebody in 2015 and being like, hey, we want to insure all this Bitcoin. And they're like, great. Is it in a vault? And like, that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> I think you going into the Lloyds of London would be a bit more successful than me because I look like I'm homeless. So they'd be like, <laughs> shoo me out the door. <laughs> yeah. Right, but um, you have the accent though. Maybe that doesn't yeah, work yeah. in London. It's sort of like the British accent only makes you smart when you're in the US. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it even works there anymore. Um, <laughs> I think I think it worked maybe 30 years ago or something. That was a huge um, reason why I think Coinbase grew so well though is because you know, you're able to say like we have insurance that's kind of equivalent to like an FDIC insurance, and you know you can be sure that your stuff is, is safe with us, even if we screw up, uh, at least theoretically. Um, and I like if I feel like if there were those types of things with more direct on-chain interactions, that that would have a similar result. You know, like people would be a little more comfortable with a hardware wallet if they also have some safety factor uh, built in from their own their own mistakes. For sure. Like social recovery and user-controlled wallets is probably like a great example of that where people kind of like put their money in this user-controlled wallet and they're like, shoot, if I lose my private key, then like all my money is gone. So just the some of the mechanisms around that probably still have a ways to go. Yeah. The chat has yeah. asked me to stop talking about insurance, so I will. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, you can go taxes. <laughs> um I want to talk about we talk, we spoke about you know going from hundred billion to multi trillions and um, crypto you know getting much bigger than it is and that it's early. Um, at the same time, right, we've sort of uh, this year particularly dominated a lot of popular culture. The richest man in the world went on television to talk about Dogecoin and shit. And it was super weird. He dressed up as like Waluigi, um, and uh, you know like. Like there's been a massive, massive rise in like retail traders, option traders, and um, and stuff. And you've sort of begun to see this divide between um, you know people who are very okay with crypto. You know they think it's super cool. They think it's going to be the future. Blah blah. blah. And then this sort of visceral um, uh, like outcries of anger from people you know like discord were doing this web3 integration and they got hundreds of maybe thousands of reports saying like if you do this i'm going to cancel my discord prime subscription or whatever the fuck they've got i don't know is that i don't even know that's thing maybe it was just i'm just going to stop using it or something um and you know that that guy that does that late night show in america jimmy summer they're all called jimmy jimmy Uh, he's called jimmy jimmy (laughs) him uh he put his his profile picture to a bored ape and like in the replies, like there's loads of other board apes been like thumbs up, and then there was loads of people being like, "Jimmy, I can't believe you've done. You could not sink lower than this. You have completely destroyed the Amazon rainforest just by point nine picture." And but it it does seem very split now, where there's people like, "Yeah, it's cool. I've owned an NFT," and then there's people like, "You own an NFT? I'm going to find out where you live and kill you." <laughs> <laughs> why? Why do you think this has happened? And then how do you think? that public perception uh, changes 
as it goes to you know multi trillions in uh, in DeFi. I just think they just keep keep getting angry on their phone. Well, I think um, one thing I observe is like there's always you know passion is better than indifference, and I think you know you you always have to worry about you know releasing a product or doing something new and nobody cares, and I think that's that's like the most common outcome. So the fact that people like care enough to be really, really against something, I think is a signal in and of itself. I think it speaks to how like a lot of what crypto is doing is challenging like very, very basic notions that we have. Like you saw this with Bitcoin, you know, 2012, 2014. Um, like most people don't think about the nature of money, especially in sort of the US or Europe, we kind of have dollar privilege or euro privilege, right? Like we have good money. We've never thought about why it might be good to have Bitcoin. Um, so I think the same thing is true for NFTs or, or DeFi. It's really, you know, challenging people and sometimes people react a certain way. But I think in the long run, optimism tends to win. Can you clarify whether or not you hate the rainforests? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We're looking down that rabbit hole. one just like hilarious story like literally i think yesterday or two days ago um jim the guy uh who runs comms at paradigm sent us this post from the producer at npr who was responsible for planet money and literally he it's a mirror post like mirror.xyz where he is on jimmy fallon in the opening of the post is like, here's a video of me on Jimmy Fallon saying that I would never buy Bitcoin and it's a terrible idea. And now he's this, he's writing this post five years later where the conclusion is if I was restarting Planet Money or any podcast today, I would do it as a DAO. So I think that just like, it shows you exactly how to Matt's point, like powerful ideas, sometimes they can feel threatening to people when they first encounter them. And then once you get over the hump of like, whoa, this is powerful, that's destabilizing slash scary. Once people wrap their head around them um, and they see how it can really benefit them, then they can effectively convert into huge supporters, believers, in this case, potentially even a builder. Yeah. Yeah, that's also the route Sailor went down, didn't he? he posted all those like anti-Bitcoin tweets, like in when when you were building Coinbase, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then decided to buy loads of Bitcoin from you a bit later on. <laughs> um, so he went down a similar route. I think it is relatively um, common. Um, people don't like to admit that uh, that they were wrong often in public. Um, Planet Money is pretty good um, podcast too, by the way. If anybody you know need the short, <laughs> this is a long podcast. That's a short podcast. So we can we can say it's good. Um, <laughs> yeah, the competition. Yeah, the competition. <laughs> worried about competition. <laughs> worried about competition from NPR. Look, people don't tune into this because it's a good podcast, mate. <laughs> if, it, if your thing's good, it's not competition. It's good guests, despite the quality yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask, who's the smartest person that either of you know that is bearish crypto? And like, do they have a good? Do, do they have a good point? Hmm. I don't know if we want to call out specific people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the hate mob. Right. 
in our conversation this morning. Yeah, I, I don't think he would mind. Um, like we, we had a team chat with Moxie this morning, the founder of Signal, and I don't think he's – I think he's very rational in his view, which is to say like he has worked on decentralizing sort of user-enabling technologies for I think, decades at this point. Um, extremely experienced cryptographer. And his question is sort of like, okay, well, um, you know, we've seen these waves of decentralized protocols with the, the internet, SMTP, et cetera. And like at the end of the day, it turns out centralized entities can build faster um, and can create better user experiences because they don't need to worry about decentralized infrastructure. So like, is that where we're heading with crypto? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think one can get into all the nuances and debate, well, is it possible that you have some decentralized layer and then centralized layers built on top of that? And that's a better world than we exist in today. Even that's an unfair example, because I think he's like very, I think he's like actually quite optimistic and open-minded. I actually struggle to come up with an example of somebody where uh, their feeling is, they're they're well informed and they think it won't work. The only thing I could put in that category are people who are just like really worried about uh, politics or something like that. Outside of that, I think it's chat brought up like Charlie Munger, like some of the kind of the old guard, really really smart people. But I wonder if that's just a generational difference. Like they're just not going to get it no matter what. Yeah, I mean, all the respect in the world that people like Charlie, but they also miss the internet. So. I think <laughs> well done. Like, all the respects in the world except boom. <laughs> the biggest incremental market cap and value creator over the past ten years, and you know he sort of bought Apple once it was already the top. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's just different styles, and I think people think differently about things. But I think that's one interesting feature of crypto is like whenever we meet smart people and they've actually dug in and tried to do their homework. They'll always have good questions, but rarely do they come out of it and say, like, the whole thing is a scam. Um, And I think most of the people saying that haven't really done the work. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think a lot of the smart people that I know that are bearish just see the stuff that seems silly. Like, they see the, the dog money and they see, like, rugs or whatever, and they're just like what is going on and you're like yeah but look a bit closer They're like no i'm not looking any closer it looks it looks ridiculous um and yeah can't you can't you can't blame them sometimes <laughs> so i'm just like mm-hmm, okay. oh, we, i think we have to train ourselves actively to kind of ignore that impulse because even being people in crypto sometimes you see stuff you know like that couldn't be more stupid but <laughs> Let me, let me turn off that part of my brain and lean in a little bit to try and understand what's happening. Um, and I think usually when you do that, at least you learn something, even if like you don't end up investing. I feel that way yeah. about WorldCoin. I really do. I mean, like it seems, well, it seems a bit dystopian, but like I understand at the same time they're trying to be like whatever UBI or with something. So like, I understand like there's some ideas there. Uh, I don't think y'all backed it, but, uh, I looked, didn't. On, I, I looked on the investor list to make sure I'm not like shaming your investments, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first due diligence ever done on the show. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it wasn't until the show started. It's like on my phone. 
Am I, am I making fun of their back? But like there's smart people, <laughs> smart people behind it, both on the investor side and the team side. And like, I kind of get what they're talking about. I just can't imagine a world where you're like staring into basketballs and scanning your eyes and calling it UBI and giving like 30% of it to like the team and, and investors. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, it would be sick to have one of those orbs though, wouldn't it? Oh man, I want it. You could put that sure. next to your tungsten cube. <laughs> <Yeah>. Golden. <laughs> They look super cool at a minimum. I mean, I feel, yeah. So Sam is, is great and he's a really smart dude to your point. Yeah. There is one really cool aspect, I think, ideologically of, of what they're going after, which is how do we get crypto in the hands of billions of people? Yeah. Um, and that, that I, I think we would all, we all love the spirit of that idea. One really interesting realization, actually, that Jackson had the other day, who you mentioned is joining as an EIR, he made a crazy point to me, which is at some point here, more people are probably going to own crypto assets than will own stocks. Mm. So like just to, to frame that. And then like what that means 10 years from now today, a Pew research poll came out about a week ago, about 16% of Americans have used crypto. That number is probably more than doubled in the last year. Wow. That's we're kind of undergoing the classic, um, uh, Carlota Perez uh, societal adoption and inflection point. Um, I think roughly 55% of Americans, I don't know what it is in, in the UK and other countries, unfortunately, own stocks. The crazy thing about crypto when you zoom out and think about it is like, it's not just this like sort of hardcore financial instrument. Like um, a lot of people don't buy stocks, but like a lot of people, every, effectively everybody uses a smartphone and uses apps on smartphones. So if you like, if you zoom out and think about where is crypto going over a 20 year horizon, if all the things we were saying earlier are true, where um, users of these next gen crypto apps will also be owners, then you can imagine getting to a place in society where almost everybody owns crypto assets. And that's just like, that's, that's some natural course of them using the internet and using these services. Um, which could be really great societally as well. Like you, you're now in a place societally where everybody is like a true owner in some sense. Um, so anyway, I thought Jackson had like a great, a really great point there. I think it, it paints a really interesting future picture of where, of what ownership just looks like in the world in general. So given your bullishness in like a multi-decade sense, uh, and at the same time, you know, y'all have multiple cycles under your under your belts, uh, like Kobe does, going back a pretty long ways to see like the cyclical ups and downs and the volatility that can occur in the market where, you know, the valuations of even like Ethereum can go down 85, 90 percent, even though it's got some product market fit, even in 2017 um, and stuff like that will happen again. How do you approach uh, investing or the market in general, maybe like choosing uh Choosing what you're investing, and then balancing that against like deploying. What did you raise? Two billion, two point five billion. Did I? It's like a half a billion dollar difference. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but you know, like then you go deploy those funds, and like you're. I assume you're also considering like where where are we in the cycle? Like how do you how do you balance all this as a as a fund? Yeah, I mean. At the highest level, because of the long-term bullishness and conviction in what crypto might become, what we really care about is what 
is going to happen 10 years from now and not what's going to happen one year from now. And so, you know, as long as we don't market by something for the whole fund tomorrow, but we're sort of investing over time. And but wasn't that the whole point of coming on the show? Yeah, I thought we were doing a two point five billion month. We have an announcement. Uh, right. <laughs> no, um, uh, as long as we're investing in sort of like the best entrepreneurs or the best opportunities we're seeing over the next couple of years, I think um, you know, in ten years, regardless of what happens in between, if we pick the right folks to back, I think it'll all work out. Um, so we're really you know, I, I think part of the blessing and curse of crypto is like it is liquid and you can track a price day to day, month to month. It is also really distracting. And sometimes the biggest things that have been built, um, you know, take 10 years to build. So we're really trying to orient our, our vision out there versus, uh, you know, shorter term. If you think about it like that, it actually feels like much easier, doesn't it? I mean, if, if you try and think like what's going to be what's going to be important in ten years, it seems much easier than what's going to be important in ten minutes or ten days. <laughs> it's like you take a step back and go right, like what what's really don't don't get wrapped up in all these like weird trends and thinking like is the money going to rotate from Solana to Avalanche or back to Luna? Which way is it going to go? You know, it's For just. Sure. Uh, and I think there are some people who are really good at that, and you know, all the respect in the world to them. Like that's not what we're good at. I don't think. I think that's a really hard game to play and i do think having the luxury to think really long term makes the game a lot easier so this might be an unfair question because it's quite hard but if you're thinking 10 years out um 10 20 or like decades or multi multi decades or whatever um how do you think about layer one blockchains do you believe in a world where ethereum uh scales and everyone's got like vitalik on their newly printed ethereum dollars (laughs) or um do you see a multi-chain world where um you know people are it's abstracted away from them um from a user experience point of view but they're jumping between on these bridges between a bunch of different blockchains and maybe the primary blockchain is not yet even invented and you're doing the seed round for it at the moment or something. I think one thing to think about is, you know, there's, there's always this question of like, theoretically, should this, should something be a winner take all market, right? Like theoretically, Maybe there should only be one social network or there should be one operating system or there should be one, you know, whatever. And I think a lot of people have made smart arguments around there should only be one cryptocurrency because store of value, blah, blah, blah. Or there should only be one layer one smart contract system. And I think empirically that just hasn't been the case. And if you look at Bitcoin and Ether, just as two examples, they've sort of carved out Although you know, people yell on Twitter all the time, they've carved out pretty distinct communities and use cases and sort of they occupy a different part of the trade-off space. And I think the same is happening for other layer ones. And so it all depends on your time horizon. Like in 100 years, what's the answer? I don't know. Maybe there'll be one winner take all. But I think for any time horizon that is meaningful, there's probably going to be a bunch. And so we spend less time thinking about like 
which one is going to win above everything else and just focus on what's providing value to users and developers and what are ecosystems that are likely to grow. I mean, you might disagree. I agree with all that. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the magical thing about what's happening now to match last point is we're finally getting to a place from a societal interest point of view and from a crypto infrastructure point of view where people can build great mainstream consumer applications. Like we're right on that cusp. Um, and there's probably going to be a lot of dynamism um, specifically because of that and specifically in this time. Do you think when that happens, a lot of the opportunity in crypto um, uh, disappears quickly for um, for, in, for investors and, and stuff? Because when you have those mainstream apps, suddenly it clicks into place for so many people at once, where at the moment it's this like weird like magic internet money thing. Uh, and they're like, well, does it solve any real problems? And then when you have these consumer apps and they see it and they go, ah, oh, shit, right, no, fuck, I get it now. But it happens for so many people at the same time that there's sort of a dilution in um, in opportunity. Therefore, uh, right now is the time to be deploying $2.5 billion into, uh, into stuff. Well, I think two things to point out there. One would be um, like judgment and taste matters. So just because crypto is going to be a thing doesn't mean every crypto project is going to, exist in 10 years and be really valuable. So I think picking the right ones matters. Um, the other thing I'd say is like, no matter how bullish you are, um, I think we're just wired as humans to underestimate what exponential growth can look like. Um, it's a really funny question actually to think about, which is like even ask Fred what he thought Coinbase you know, would do today, would be like today back in 2012. There is no way he could paint the picture of what it's become with a straight face because you're you're talking about Bitcoin at over fifty thousand. You're talking about a company that's worth <laughs> over fifty billion in the public market. Like entrepreneurs are ambitious, but they're not going to paint that specific picture. And so I think even as we all sit here today, as mainstream as crypto has been, as excited as we are about it, I think even us are probably not intuitively sort of understanding how big it might be in 10 years. Um, and so we always have to remind ourselves that even if you're the most bullish person, you know, exponential curves are hard to intuit. Yeah. I, I think it's reasonable for like the richest people in the world 10 years from now to be made up mostly of people that were early to a trend as big as crypto. If crypto follows kind of this growth path of the internet right now, the richest people in the world are, from the internet age and before that it was oil companies or whatever. Like I don't think we're there in terms of, uh, except for maybe Sam. Uh, I think CZ is already secretly the richest person in the world. I think CZ yeah. is like. People are saying that in the chat. And I think, I think that's an interesting, really interesting feature of crypto, which is these aren't people like showing up on fancy lists and they're not like flying to Davos and, you know, networking with like, the existing establishment. There are people that are coming out of nowhere. It's global. I think we're probably really underestimating the kind of effects of that. And hopefully it's for the good. I think generally the people benefiting off crypto probably self-select for like more open-minded people and people who are interested in weird things and excited to take them seriously. I think having more resources 
in society go to that type of person is actually like tremendously optimistic for the future. We're going to get so much good anime funded. <laughs> there you go. That's what they need. <laughs> no, admitted, yeah, just, just to put just to, um, put an exclamation point on that, I couldn't agree more with that point. And it's sort of like the risk, the open-mindedness and the risk tolerance of people who have been early in crypto is just totally different than anything any current institution um, has or could even imagine having. And we're already seeing some of the early effects of that. Like there are early crypto people who are funding some pretty amazing stuff in um, in biotech, for example. And I feel like that is just going to cause a lot of amazing progress in the world. It just would not have happened otherwise. Yeah. So hopefully hopefully it all continues. I mean, Justin Sun almost got liquidated for like $4 billion just because his collateral wasn't quite there. Do you reckon? Do you reckon Justin's just going to rug the constitution down and outbid him? He's going to fly in at the last minute and just like, sorry, I doubled your bid. That's seems, a Justin something to do. It is. It seems like the constitution Dow thing is like way too public to work. Like somebody's just going to be like, I know exactly what you've done. I I can bid one dollar more. You know. <laughs> yeah, I know how much you've raised. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be Justin. I guarantee it. You just gave me an idea. Somebody's going to send him this. I'm going to text him. Justin, please buy the the Constitution. Nice Nice flex. Um, So I want to pull back to some of the identity-driven stuff. Um, You talked about the metaverse earlier, and and, um, I know y'all are really interested in, like, the role Web3 plays in kind of this next iteration of social um, metaverse stuff, whatever it ends up being, and like the kind of the wallet being a part of that. Is the wallet the identity? Is it a multi-wallet future? Is like wh- what does a login look like into the metaverse? Like wh- how do you blend all that? Like where do we actually wh- where is our our being established? Um, yeah, yeah. I think the top level framing of it is by. Uh, your God, there's so many good ones on this. It's sort of like there's an iPhone bundling moment that is happening with the crypto wallet in the same way that the iPhone bundled a bunch of different physical devices into one, an MP3 player, um, a a mobile um, email device, a literal mobile telephone or a computer to access the internet, put it all into one user port. The same thing is happening with crypto wallets, but with virtual services. Um, So, like, what is your crypto wallet? It is your bank account. uh, It is your identity. uh, It is your reputation. It is your ability. It's your universal Internet login. It's all in one place. It's effectively the digital you as time goes on. It will be the digital representation and kind of ownership layer for everything that is you on the internet. Um, I think that's like a pretty dramatic shift that people may not fully grok yet. Like, um, so I think they'll, they'll be extremely central just to the way that we live um, over the coming decades, assuming that is true. Um, and in the same way that like an iPhone or, or a smartphone in general is really key to our lives today, could imagine that crypto wallets are even more important than that 10 years from today. Can we do that and maintain any degree of like 
personal financial privacy? Zero knowledge proofs. Maybe to be less cryptic about that, it's like, it's a really good question, right? Like right now, everything you do on a blockchain um, is tracked. Like it's, it's kind of an interesting thought in that um, in some sense, like there are the early beginnings of uh, of next-gen social networks just from on-chain data, right? It's like, you know, I have Fred.eth, you have your .eth um, identifier. You're doing all sorts of actions on-chain, like buying NFTs that's basically a social graph and an activity feed um, in some abstract sense to hit the privacy point. We're definitely going to need to evolve better privacy tools. Otherwise we're going to live in a pretty bizarre transparent world. I don't, maybe that would be good in some ways. I'm not sure, but um, you know, one, one thing that um, a lot of our, a lot of our team is, is very into our zero knowledge proofs where, um, you can still crypt- cryptographically prove certain things or take certain actions without like exactly how, you know, you're effectively your bank statement being public on the internet. Um, and that'll probably bleed into people building applications and all that good stuff too. Yeah. Or like your medical mm-hmm. records or your vote or like things that are very real world. Exactly. Yeah. So how come Zcash just keeps going down? <laughs> <laughs> Is it Zuko's like done it on where purpose? That's the two billion dollar buy is going straight. Zuko, right. Zuko's just rugging us on purpose. <laughs> well, one, yeah, one thing that's been interesting to watch in Web 2.0 land is how much people actually care about privacy. Yeah, um, empirically, user, you know, billions of people have given over um, troves of their public data to large companies um, in exchange for convenience. Um, I think people might react to that a little bit differently um, if it were fully transparent. So it's not only like, are you giving it to a company, but it's on this big public ledger that anybody can read. It might also get more sensitive too, if it was their bank, um, if, if it's financial transactions, bank records. In yeah. addition. So I think there's, um, there's a bit of a shift there. Uh, one other kind of related, um, but separate point is sort of like, I think this is a big question for Web3 in general. It's sort of like, okay, people clearly value convenience and centralization in Web2 land. So, like, is that actually going to change um, or not? And, like, will people actually use these Web3 apps for that reason when there are way worse user experiences in, in many different ways? And one thing that we go back to a lot is the idea that um, – Ownership is really the key ingredient of Web3 and a huge sea change in how people think about the value proposition of different applications online. Um, So, like, yeah, it might be that people really like great centralized user experiences, but it also might be that if you say, like, hey, you're an early adopter um, of this application uh, and there's huge economic upside for that, that that, um, that could be the most powerful factor of all. Did seem to work uh, for BitClout at first, didn't it? Until all the all the weird stuff came out. Um, uh, but I think it does make sense, and it it puts you in. Um, it's sort of like uh, just a, 
I don't know how to phrase this. It's like kind of like what crypto people do now, right? They use these protocols and then they get an airdrop and then they decide whether they keep the airdrop, sell the airdrop, buy more of the airdrop. But they have some ownership over a product that they use, but you just um, you know, extrapolate out to anything you could potentially use, games, social networks, whatever, whatever app you use. But imagine the anxiety and stress of like, I've got all these like little fractions of tokens of all these apps I've ever used. Which ones do I keep? It's going to be a right mess. Blockfolio is going to be way too long. <laughs> we need a dust collector. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to leave them all. I really like your point about uh, the way Web two companies they just don't, they, they don't put it out there like here's your exact net worth and what your, what your bank statement is. It's more you see it in the sense of like here's some recommended products that we think you should buy because you talked about these last night at like, you know, around the, around the living room. Um, and they're just really, really good with ad awareness, uh, and targeting. And, and we kind of forgive that because it doesn't feel as directly intrusive. Um, I think that's a really good point, but they know all that stuff. Like they know when you're pregnant or they know when you're whatever, like they know all these things about you. They know your like spending habits. Um, so yeah, maybe it's just, you know, figuring that out but i mean you're kind of stumbling on one other really good point um definitely stumbling. i attempted to write a blog, blog post on this idea i think in 2018 where it turned like a lot of the convenience i think of your your point is like a lot of the convenience potentially of centralized web services is there's great recommender systems in them it's sort of like imagine going on um you know spotify and that not existing or same with amazon for carpet whatever um, so like another area in which uh, crypto and the cryptography sense is going to need to improve a lot is privacy preserving computation techniques. So like um, multi-party computation or homomorphic encryption, where we can still have private data and we can give it to some service that can do valuable stuff with it, make recommendations, whatever, return it to us without um our privacy being violated in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we're running a little bit uh, long on time, but uh, I think we have a couple of questions maybe from the chat and Kobe's got some follow-ups. First, I need to know, based on all those things you said, uh, it sounds like maybe you're you're still pretty bullish on something like Punk, so like kind of the OG uh, avatar, like for Punk's overpriced or underpriced right now? <laughs> that's, what I, that's, what I that's what I want to know. It's just selfish. I'm just it's for the people. It's for the people. You're gonna like buy or sell after this. Now. I didn't ask about, <laughs> can't, I can't afford a pump. I didn't ask about my bags. Now if I asked about cryptodes, you know, it's a whole different story. But um obviously we can't give investment <laughs> That's fine. You can afford I think one thing one thing we can say is I do think if you you know if you look at the world of art, there is always something special about um, unique pieces of art that end up changing the paradigm or, or getting people to think about something in a different way. Yeah. Um, and they can be self-reinforcing. When you both say paradigm, which you use normally in a sentence, it's like uh, in a movie when they say the title of the movie in the movie. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So do you use it more or less? Do you like try and avoid the word or do you, you like try and throw it in? Word, yeah. <laughs> Kobe, did you, did you use my bad question to prepare uh, your show ending uh, question? Yeah, I got a couple of, couple of quick fire ones because, yeah, we're of like four minutes over. And so we'll do a couple of quick fire ones and then we'll uh, peace out. Um, 
I want to know, like, what have you been wrong on? Like, your biggest, like, I'm, I'm, f- I'm firm on this thesis, and you just totally fucked it up. You were like so off the mark, because like very impressive people, but like, tell us when you were wrong, catastrophically wrong, with huge consequences, if possible. <laughs> we're wrong. Well, first of all, we're wrong all the time. I'll riff a little while Fred picks an example. We're wrong all the time. Um, I think that's just being an investor. Uh, one observation is often the most expensive mistakes are the sins of omission rather than the sins of commission, um, especially in a sort of venture context where if you're right, it could be a thousand X. If you're wrong, you're down one X. Um, so that's just a very asymmetric risk reward. Um, so I would say like the ones we beat ourselves up about the most are probably the ones that we missed or, or chose not to invest in. Yeah. Any favorites? Jeez. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's sort of like inevitable that when you're exploring the frontier and you're trying to do a bunch of really ambitious stuff that seems kind of nuts, like some of it will work, some won't. Um, one idea that we were all really excited about, this actually, again, links back to Robin Hanson, the Mercatus Institute at George Mason. Um, uh, Robin Hansen had maybe two great ideas, or oh, many great ideas, but as it applies to crypto, he has two ideas which really clearly apply. One are automated market makers, which in some way is what Uniswap became, and that's obviously worked quite well, at least so far. One other idea that he had, which are linked to automated market makers or prediction markets, um, where I think like we've all been very abstractly excited about prediction markets for a long time, um, we invested in one team trying to build that up many years ago, and it just kind of like not not right place, right time. I think the big danger in all these things too, and I experienced this um, in the context of Coinbase early on, pitching to people who worked at PayPal. Um, you can develop scar tissue from these things. So, like, just because yeah. something was, uh, you know didn't work at one point in time doesn't mean that it is a potentially great idea and it might not work a few years later. So that's one where like on some level, we're all still sort of like abstractly excited about it. And then there's some question of like, when might that um, concretely take hold? Yeah, that makes sense. The scar tissue thing hits home for me uh, quite a lot. Uh, next rapid fire question. How do you get to work for Paradigm? If you're listening to this, there's a bunch of people listening. They might go, I want a job at Paradigm. Um, how do they make that happen? I think we're always interested in, you know, thoughtful, energetic, special people. Just like send us something cool that you made on the internet or in crypto. That's the best way. Kobe, we should do that. Yeah. Uh, Final question. We ask it to uh, every single guest at the end of uh, this podcast or whatever we're doing right now. Um, We want to know, like a piece or like sort of like a mantra or um, uh, something that you often find yourself reflecting on that guides your actions in life. Maybe you got it from a book or an old teacher when you were young or uh, a a parent or something, but um, some sort of life advice that uh, listeners or viewers can use to make themselves happier, smarter, more fulfilled, richer, you know, just uh, make their lives a bit better. 
um, something that you find yourself applying to life quite often. I rant a lot, ramble, so it gives you time to think. <laughs> People that have watched just like, goes on about this bit for ages. It's, it's not that complicated of a question. <laughs> I mean, the biggest one for me is, I mean, it's easy in life to sweat the small stuff and all kinds of shit happens to the best of us, I think. For me, it's always been about zooming out and like, like what are the what is the one thing that really matters, the one or two things that really matters in a job, in an investment, in a situation? And I think usually if you get those right, everything else kind of takes care of itself. So figuring out what those things are is, is uh, super important. Matt, and Matt, it turns out Matt is very good at that. Um, <laughs> it keeps me on the rails uh, at times. Um, I've, my 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 knee jerk reaction to the question is sort of like it's all it's almost like don't take too much advice. So I almost don't want to answer the question in a, in a way. <laughs> it's sort of like I think all the people who end up doing things that really matter, um, um, they just they think through things for themselves, and that's not to say they don't listen to people, but. Um, they sort of, they think from first principles, um, and see whether or not something makes sense to them or something is valuable to them. Um, so that's, and that in some ways that's, that's sort of like a hard one to hear. Like I, I almost don't want to verbally say anything to communicate. It's hard to communicate that idea without doing the opposite of it. <laughs> um, that, that would, that would be mine. I like it. Amazing. Thank you both for your time. Sorry we ran over a little bit. Thank you so much for coming on. And if you've tuned in, thanks for watching. Thank you all so much. You can catch them at paradigm.xyz. Got the social handles there. All that good stuff. Appreciate you all being here. Fred, Matt, thank you so much uh, for being here with us. As a reminder, go to uponly.tv slash FTX. You can trade crypto right there on the FTX app. Just like we do. Uh, we bought the dip today. I did. I don't know about you, Kobe. You can do it on FTX. Up only. It's dipping. I unlocked the price since I got back. <laughs> slash FTX. Is it bad? As well. It's not bad. It's okay. It's okay. You still have time. Oh God. Yeah. I'm not looking. Thanks I'm, for joining I'm us. I'm not off holiday. We're tonight. back. We're back. We're happy to be here. See you later. <laughs>